The Tom Sumner Program. Old fashioned radio for a new generation. Oh, it's always a pleasure to be with you, Tom. You know that. Yay, Tom! <laughs> I love it in Flint! You're very astute, Tom. Have an easy question. I'll debate Andy Dillon on your show. Well, that's a very good question. Hello, darling. This is Elvira, Mistress of the Dark, with Tom Sumner. I'm all right, Tom. How are you? Hey, lucky day, Mr. Ciao, Tom. How are you today? That's a good question. <laughs> Hi, this is actor, comedian Jonah Pody, and you're listening to the Tom Snyder, uh, Tom Smothers. Uh, I mean, I'm sorry, what's his name? Uh, Sumner. The Tom Sumner Program. Good morning, Tom. How are you doing? Hey, at least I got the Tom part right. The Tom Sumner Program. Old-fashioned radio for a new generation. Our fellow Americans. Right now, the COVID-19 vaccines are available to millions of Americans. And soon, they will be available to everyone. The science is clear. These vaccines will protect you and those you love from this dangerous and deadly disease. They could save your life. So we urge you to get vaccinated when it's available to you. That's the first step to ending the pandemic and moving our country forward. It's up to you. The Tom Sumner Program plays host to the best political roundtable on radio every Wednesday from 10 a.m. to noon. Armchair Politics features great commentary and analysis about the headlines from local, state, and national politics with an alumni of world-class pundits, plus quotes, tweets, and those weird and wacky stories we call the X-Files. If it's Wednesday, catch Armchair Politics on the Tom Sumner Program. This is Mayor Sheldon Neely, and you're listening to The Tom Sumner Show. I read the news today, oh boy About a lucky man who And though the news was rather sad Well, I just had to laugh I saw the photograph He blew his mind out in a car That the lights had changed A crowd of people stood aside They seen his face before Nobody was really sure if he was from the house of
woke up, fell out of bed, grabbed a comb across my head. My way says, and I had a cup. Looking up, I noticed I was late. Grabbed my coat, grabbed my hat, made the books and seconds flat. Mama well says and I had a smoke Somebody spoke and I went into a dream Ah Ah Welcome back, everybody. This is the Tom Sumner Program. My guest this hour, Dr. Christopher Gilbert, is a senior international ethics consultant and popular keynote speaker. He is uh, co-founder of Noble Edge Consulting. He's worked with Fortune 500 government and nonprofit organizations, including the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. And uh, he has a new book. It's called The Noble Edge, Reclaiming an Ethical World one choice at a time, and I'm glad he chose to be on our show, and uh, I welcome him. Chris, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. It's a real privilege, Tom. Um, Christopher, the the one choice at a time, I remember a, a screenwriter friend of mine in, in Los Angeles years ago asked me a question once, and I've been scratching my head about it ever since. Do you want to be right, or do you want to be effective? Oh, very interesting. Uh, you know, this is this is uh, this is akin to the the uh, conversations I often have with business organizations, profit or nonprofit. Uh, the idea that somehow, if they are focusing on social responsibility, including uh, ethical decision making and making the right decisions up and down the organizations, they're going to actually lose out on profit, which can be equated to what you said, efficiency. If they lose efficiency, then they're not going to be able to make the things they make. But 
when I started these conversations, oh, maybe 25 years ago now, we didn't have much statistical evidence about the effect of organizations, for instance, being ethical or unethical. And now we do. That, our, that uh, our data has been kept now for many, many years. And just to rattle off a couple, you know, organizations that put social responsibility and ethics uh, into their mission statement that's a part of the daily activities that go on in the organization, they're actually 22% more profitable than the organizations that don't. Well, There's I would, a 21% I would think increase in productivity efficiency. Repeat business is born out of trust. That's exactly right. You know, trust is actually the foundation of all of our virtues. Um, I'll ask the question sometimes, uh, what's the most important human virtue? From good people, it's a good answer. They'll say love. But if you think about it, what actually makes love operate between us, and I'm talking about true love between us, whether it's by friends or partners, is trust. What love relationship exists without trustworthiness behind it? And you could say this about, as you're saying, uh, the, the uh, relationship between consumers and a business or suppliers in a business or employees in a business. Uh, it thrives in atmospheres of trust and trustworthiness. So it's a very, very important thing to think about animating all of our virtues with the idea of being trustworthy and adding to the trust, not subtracting from it. Well, I remember when I worked in nonprofit management, a lot of the arguments we had over whatever we were thinking about, whatever proposal was in front of us, was whether it was uh, driven by mission or margin. And, well, that's a really good question and, <laughs> as well. And, and we found um, most often that when we did things, whether it was a fundraiser or something else, if it was somehow program-related or tied to our mission, they were more successful. If we, just tried, if we just tried to do a hip concert or a rubber chicken dinner or something, yeah, we raised a couple of bucks because we had good reputation and so on. But if we did something that was program or mission related and it was a fundraiser, we did significantly better. And I think that speaks to the heart of what we all expect is agreement between our actions and our words. So if an organization, nonprofit or otherwise, is living into its mission, which is often stated up front or online or people understand what that mission is, especially in nonprofits before they decide they're going to be uh, giving to that nonprofit, um, they're going to look for that uh, the uh, parallel between what the organization says and what the organization does. So I don't think it's any surprise that the organizations, profit or nonprofit, that live into what it is that they promised others aren't actually the ones that do get the most profit, or in this case, the most donations. Well, I know I've had a number of conversations on this show with various uh, authors and, and experts from a variety of uh, disciplines talking about privacy and the expectation of privacy. And you just said something about the expectation of ethics or truthfulness and I'm wondering if we have the same expectation of privacy that we did 20 or 40 years ago and if the same could be said about ethics do are we are we holding people to the same standards we did some time ago 
Yeah, I get this question a lot when we start talking about what appears to be a particularly toxic moral era. Um, and I think in the case that you're talking of specifically, uh, can people maintain their privacy even if they're donating to large organizations? We just saw the California Oh, no, I, I was thinking more about how, that, you know, I used to joke, uh, Christopher, that I joined MySpace back before Facebook and Mark Zuckerberg uh, to spy on my kids. <laughs> because they would say things on MySpace and later Facebook that they would never tell me. And and so it's it's more a sense of young people coming up if they even have an expectation of privacy or is it just put it all out there and then and then I wanted to sort of transpose that to ethics as well when you see you know national figures whether you know it's it's Donald Trump and we don't want to spend a lot of time on that but other leaders that you expect to give you good information and they're maybe not giving you good information do we have the expectation that they would have should have uh starting from your beginning point with using uh the uh, uh online application to try and figure out what your kids might be doing or saying you wanted to find out. You know, I bet you <laughs> brought them to the program, and I don't suggest you do this, by the way. Um, they probably would talk about their privacy, um, just like all the rest of us, that we have an expectation that the information that we're giving, whatever it would be, uh, is going to be used properly, or in some cases not used at all, or just used by the organization. And I think that expectation is a real one, and when you can't trust what's going to happen with that information, then you're probably considering your privacy uh, even uh, more strongly when you're trying to make a choice about, in the case of a nonprofit, donating to an organization. Uh, in the case of leadership, it's kind of interesting, you know, uh, weak, weak leaders just want to be right. Strong leaders want to find the truth. I'll say that again. Strong leaders want to find the truth. Weak leaders just want to be right. And we see this, whether it's in government or in uh, business organizations or even in churches and perhaps families. Uh, the idea here is that if we really want to get as far as we want to get in terms of uh, uh, achieving something, then, in fact, uh, all strong leaders would be much more interested in finding out about the truth and moving forward on that truth than they are about trying to buttress something that has been a lie from the beginning. And now what we have to do is create more untruths all the way along to make sure that we can maintain what it was that we first said or first thought about this. And, of course, we can look at administrations in this case and say, yeah, and they didn't stay. They're not there anymore. I think there was an expectation, especially from among the top leaders, if I can put it that way, that they're out there to help us find the truth not out there to cover all kinds of things up that may come from ulterior motives or individual achievements. More about ethics with Dr. Christopher Gilbert, straight ahead. Hello, darling. This is Elvira, Mistress of the Dark, with Tom Sumner. I'm Julie Lopez with Crime Stoppers. Have you ever wondered what to do if you have information about a crime or the whereabouts of a felony fugitive and you want the police to know but you need to remain anonymous? Well, here's what you can do. You can go to p3tips.com or download the mobile app. You can go to Crime Stoppers of Flint and Genesee County's Facebook page and click on the Leave an Anonymous Tip tab, or you can call 1-800-422-JAIL. All methods are anonymous, and if your help leads to a felony arrest, you may be eligible for a cash reward. 
Remember, your voice matters. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention is working to help keep you and your community safe from the threat of novel or new coronavirus. If you have traveled to a country with a widespread outbreak of COVID-19, CDC recommends you stay home and check your health for 14 days after returning to the United States. Take your temperature with a thermometer two times a day. Watch for symptoms like fever, cough, and trouble breathing. And if you feel sick or have symptoms, call ahead before you go to a doctor's office or emergency room. Tell the doctor about your recent travel and your symptoms, and avoid contact with others. For more information, visit cdc.gov. Hey, this is Tom from the Tom Sumner Program. Catch me and a gaggle of great guests weekdays on Our Voices Radio, WFOVLP 92.1 FM. You never know who might drop by. Joe Biden from the Blue Hawaiian. Dan Serling. Congressman Dan Kildee. Alexander Zondrick. Actor, comedian Joe Napote. Woodrow Stanley. U.S. Senator Debbie Stabenow. State Senator Jim Annan. Comedian Brian McCree. The unknown comic. Mark Farner. And Tom, I want you to know Tom's my friend. You know, you've always got great questions, and you know the material, and you, and you care about it, and it's uh, it's that's impressive. Nice to be with you, Tom. And I admire you for reading all of that. I haven't read the whole thing. I've got willing to admit that. <laughs> hey, Tom. This is my favorite interview always. You, you, <laughs> it's like having coffee at the kitchen table with you. Tune in Monday through Friday from 9 to 12 right here on 92.1 of a Kind. And check out our website at TomSumnerProgram.com. Yo, speaking. Oh, dear. Honey, our car warranty is expiring again. So soon? It just expired last week. You don't even own a car! Not now, Dana. Your father's on the phone. Hey! Mom and Dad, you're being scammed! It's a robocall! Scammers are using new technology and clever tactics to make more and more calls that look legitimate, but are hard to trace. They can make it look like they're calling from any number, even from numbers of people you know. My robocall crackdown team is working with state and federal partners to stop the robocalls for good, but I need your guys' help. Don't trust your caller ID. Verify you're really talking to the person whose number appears when your phone rings. If you accidentally answer a robocall, hang up right away. Engaging in conversation will only lead to more calls. Use a call blocking app on your cell phone that stops robocalls before they interrupt your day. And if you do get a robocall, File a complaint with my office online at mi.gov slash robocalls. And mom, dad, please do not give your information out to these scammers over the phone. They're just trying to trick you. Well, at least they call. No, I get it. You're busy. But you know, Janine's daughter is a doctor. She calls every week. A doctor. I'm Michigan Attorney General Dana Nessel. Visit mi.gov slash agcomplaints for your connection to consumer protection. Hello, this is State Senator Jim Ananick, and you're listening to Tom Sumner. More about ethics with Dr. Christopher Gilbert, straight ahead. When we start talking about different points of view, and and I remember that that famous quote, uh, I I forget which which legislator coined the phrase, but it was... um, you're entitled to your own opinions, but not your own facts. Um, 
with opinions as diverse as they are, um, is do we have a, a right to expect people to back up their point of view with irrefutable facts and information? Yeah, I think you could phrase it as a right, but I think it's even more than that. We can't possibly move forward uh, even as an individual unless we understand truly what the circumstances are, whether there's something wrong that's happened and we need to make up for it, or whether we're headed in the right direction or what we think is the right direction. It needs to be based on what the truth on the ground is. You know, a, an ethical choice is any choice that you make uh, speak it as an individual, that you make as an individual, any choice that you make that has an impact on others now or in the future. And so that opens the gate very wide to the idea that the individual choices that we make daily begin to have an impact on those around us. And unless we consider that impact, we're not actually making the best choices. I just worry about the people who rationalize that you know, other people lie, other people cheat. Why can't I? Yeah, you know, if we spend as much time looking at the downfall of those people that looked as though for a period of time they were incredibly successful, so we don't concentrate on the short term of those successes but on the long term, we're going to find far more examples of people actually falling <laughs> off of the top that we thought we'd like to attain as well because they didn't have trustworthiness or they weren't honest and, and uh, in, integrous, didn't have integrity in the actions that they were taking. And I think we've got a reasonable expectation uh, that the people that are in positions of affecting many, many others should be even considering those others more than perhaps uh, us making a decision that might impact one other person around us. Both are ethical choices, and both should be uh, taken at the uh, highest moral level that we can take at the time, but uh, I think it's reasonable to think that if you've got more impact on a lot more people around you, like let's say the president of company or the president of the United States, that you have to take more concerns into the equation, more diversity into the uh, uh, answer uh, that we eventually want to take because it's going to have an impact on that diversity as well. Um, and if I, if I may for just a moment, one of the things that I experienced that actually made me write this book uh, came out of the trainings that I was doing in corporate boardrooms and uh, education I was doing in graduate and undergraduate classes in colleges uh, in several different countries. Uh, I, I noticed as we were studying those people in high-profile positions that somehow stumbled and really did affect a lot and, and were picked up in the media right away, those high-profilers, uh, as we were studying their cases to begin to understand what the ethics were behind their decision-making, uh, I, I had this uh, group or these groups have what I call now ethics out-of-body experiences, where somehow they absented themselves from the idea that they could ever make such a bad choice, as if somehow, uh, you know, bad choices were made by unethical people and good choices came from the rest of us. And I realized we need to have a better conversation, and that's exactly what my book, The Noble Edge, is about. A better conversation, a better way to talk about this so that it has an individual or personalized impact. Well, a moment ago, Christopher, it sounded like you were suggesting that there might be consequences to misinformation. <laughs> uh, <laughs> well, 
<laughs> even if it's just a stain in the history books, um, I think that uh, somehow or other the truth actually always does prevail. Um, I'm reminded of a line that's in the Gandhi movie. I'm not sure Gandhi said it, but it was that whole idea that no matter how bad or, or evil people have been, uh, it eventually catches up with them, and they do not last. Love, in the end, I think this was his quote, love in the end is always what conquers, um, even if it's in his case he was doing it on a, a uh, non-traditional basis, right, was trying to create this idea that, you know, that those bad decisions, they'll, they'll last for a while, but ultimately they fade, and the good decisions come to prevail. Well, you know, there's um, three words. There's actually two sets of three words, that if, if you limit it to men, that they don't like to say, and one is I love you, and the other is I don't know. And, this is true. And, and when people will be afraid to admit that they don't know something, and invariably they will say or do something unethical rather than admit that they don't know. How much courage does it take to be truthful and ethical? I think that's an excellent question because, in fact, in any choice that we make, we're, there is a certain level of what I'll call or what the book talks about, moral courage, in at a certain point realizing, you know, I'm the only one I'm going to see in the mirror every morning, and who do I want that person looking back at me to be? And ultimately, when you make a poor choice, especially if it has an impact on a lot of other people, you're going to be looking at someone different in the mirror than you want to be able to see. The book is subtitled uh, Reclaiming an Ethical World One Choice at a Time, um, but the first title, The Noble Edge, really represents what's supposed to be an advance in our character. Um, this is the space where the nobility we're born with flourishes through the agreement of our words and deeds, a place where honesty and integrity always underscore our ethical choices, and sometimes those require a lot of courage. There was a woman in one of my graduate courses in ethics uh, at a university um, that was working with a pharmaceutical company, and they were intentionally mislabeling the pharmaceuticals. I don't think it was at a dangerous level, but certainly it was a it was misinformation in order to be able to sell a drug. And she was going through this debate. In fact, she felt so strongly about it. She brought it up in the class, which I think took a lot of courage on its own. And uh, it offered us some great uh, perspectives to think about what telling the truth would mean. And in this case, she knew she'd probably lose her job. She had two youngsters at home. She was a single mother uh, going to college, as I said. And, and the uh, outcome of this was going to be very, very difficult. Now, her decision was she was eventually going to tell the truth, which she did. She became a whistleblower. Uh, they came in and actually closed down the operation, and all the folks that were complicit uh, had either uh, fees or prison time to have to spend. Uh, and she avoided all that, even though the short term was really rough. There was another pharmaceutical company that picked her up uh, not too long after that and said, we want your kind of person in the organization. Um, and again, the idea of focusing on the long term. If we knew the consequences of the choices that we were making at the time that we were making them, we probably would make better decisions, whether that's to the bad or to the good, meaning the consequences wind up hurting us or the consequences wind up rewarding us. If we knew the end of the journey, 
at the beginning, I think we would be able to make better better decisions when we have to make them. Do ethical decisions, and, and I'm, I'm trying to get at it, if, if you make the right choice, is it universally right, or, or can it be right for some and not for others? I hear two questions inside that one, and I'm not sure which one's right, uh, but I'll sort of try and answer both quickly. Uh, the first one would be that, you know, morals only work if they're universal. That is, that whether this is about nature or nurture, whether this is about uh, making families healthier, so they're raising kids that are thinking about this, um, the, the uh, decisions that we make really have to represent, and are beginning to represent more and more, by the way, a universal morality. It's sort of like uh, the analogy that I use in the book about this. It's like the four-way stop sign. You know, if you step, step up and watch a cars coming to a four-way stop <laughs> uh, at that intersection, you know, you could say, well, what I'm watching here is the law in Washington State. That's the revised code of Washington 302-sub-AB, and that tells you you have to stop. But quite frankly, what you're actually witnessing at that four-way stop is trust. I trust you're going to stop, and you trust I'm going to stop, and even though we're going in completely different directions, that trust between us actually allows us to get through that intersection and off to wherever it is we're going the fastest. So imagine now that you've got someone, a group of people that believe in the four-way stop and a group of people who don't believe in the four-way stop. Well, the lives of everyone in both those groups is affected because I'm going to imagine most of us come to that stop and now we're going to wait, not knowing whether there are trusters or non-trusters <laughs> coming at me from a different direction. We're going to have to wait longer to actually have a, a, a way to get through that intersection because we need to make sure anybody who's coming from other directions, uh, whether we don't know what they are, uh, we just have to believe they might be a non-truster. They don't want to stop there. They're going to go right through it, and i got to wait until all those people go by before I do. And even the people who don't trust and want to go running through that four-way stop, they're affected because they pull up to that stop and they go, well, am I looking at a truster or a non-truster coming in this office direction? And while there might be a few people that just close their eyes and jam the accelerator down, all of our lives, or at least most of them, are affected by not being able to trust who comes to the intersection. That's a great oh, yeah, example. Um, that's a great example, Christopher, because uh, we've all experienced that. And, and there are times when people weren't paying attention. They're not sure who got to the stop sign first. And there's that, that little bit of riding the <laughs> brake a couple of times until someone through a head nod or a wave or something breaks the jam. Yeah, exactly. And I think a part of your question, so my second answer to that question you're asking is that somehow we've got in our heads that, that ethics are gray and iffy or they're philosophical. Um, and I'm, I'm here to say one of the points in my book is we've got to stop thinking about ethics as being gray. The situations around them may be very gray, but saying ethics are gray is sort of like using the phrase sort of pregnant or I sort of voted. Uh, you know, I'm sorry, you are or you aren't. You did or you didn't. Um, there's no in-between, and even though the situation um, may make seeing the ethical answer or acting in an ethical way very, very difficult, and in not all situations will, be able, will we be able to make the highest moral choices 
because the world isn't working that way yet. Um, it's still the way to think about ethics, and people are starved for solid ground. They actually want to know what's right and what's wrong. And as you said with your question, that it has to become a universal morality so that all of us coming to that four-way stop are acting in exactly the same way. It's going to take a while, but it happens, as my book says, one choice at a time. And if we can think about it in, the, in, in, in that in the way we make choices, and this is what my research shows, we actually start to see a more productive, trustworthy, and dare I say happier world uh, to live in. Well, in essence, that means that if we practice doing the right thing when making choices over small things, we're more likely to do them when big things present themselves. Yeah, that's right. By habit, we begin to think about the right way and the wrong way. My book has uh, in inside of it a tool. I think it's probably the most uh, important tool the book offers of thinking about our choices, not from some philosophical or even religious perspective, or not to think about it using laws. Laws are sort of the low bar when it comes to ethical conversations. And by the way, law, laws tell us what we can do. Ethics tell us what we should do. So we'd probably be better off concentrating on ethics most of the time anyway, because it's that question we need to answer, what should, be, what should we be doing in this case? And so you can think about the way that you make ethical choices, like stepping up a little stepladder that has three steps. The first step is I look at the consequences of my choices, and it's about me. So everything I'm going to think about is what, what punishment do I avoid if I make this kind of choice, or what reward do I get if I make this kind of choice? But basically, the ethics at that first level are the consequences are about me. You move up to the second step, and that's, well, the consequences of this choice are about some of us, right? My, my family, uh, my uh, business organization, uh, my friends, uh, even my neighborhood, my community, my nation. It's just an example of some of us rather than thinking globally, which is at the third step, thinking about, well, you know, the consequences of my choice are actually about all of us or at least all of those who might be affected by what it is that I do. And we step up, those, step up and down those steps. It's about me, it's about some of us, and it's about all of us all the time because it's awful hard sometimes to maintain that top step, sometimes even impossible to do it because some the consequences may be just simply too large uh, for maintaining that step until we begin to change some things in the world around us. But if we can think about our ethical choices that way, we get out of the gray, iffy ground. When I'm doing this choice, is it about me? Is it just about some of us? Or am I really thinking about everyone, all of us that will be affected by the choice? I, re I remember an attorney friend of mine talking about a contract one time, and he said, you can't have a good contract with a bad guy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's really true. Although we certainly would need the strongest contract with a bad guy, wouldn't we? Well, that's that's what you're shooting for, but... You know, he was saying at the end of the day, the bad guy's going to do something bad. <laughs> you know? yeah, that's right. Yeah, exactly. So all we do is catch him. You know, I, I uh, say, I don't say this facetiously, but um, it's a comment, I think, that, and you see this in the book as well. The idea that, that if we think about laws and ethics, in the case you're talking here about a contract, which is a legal perspective on an agreement between us, we think about a law uh, and, and the ethics that are around us, um, it's uh, interesting for us to uh, think about an ethical choice 
uh, from the perspective again of what should happen here versus what can happen here. And if you look at it from that perspective and, and that law is sort of the low bar, you realize that, that ethics is really about an exercise of our virtues, not an exercise of our rights. And you know, if all of our rights are animated by the virtues that we're bringing into the decision, then that agreement actually creates a much better world. I, you, you touched on something there, Christopher, that reminded me of uh, uh, some conversations I've had with people over the years about academia versus the real world and the way it should be versus the way it is. Should there, uh, should there be a difference there? Uh, you know, again, a really good question. I think that in the end, of course, you want people coming out through an educational system, whether they're just getting up through high school or to go off to community college or undergraduate and, uh, undergraduate and graduate degrees, they should have some feeling for the way things that are, are, are operating. But we also then want to empower those uh, people that are getting that kind of education with the idea that if the system's rotten, if the system's not working, and you're not able to make a good choice inside that system, you have an obligation to try and help change the system. Because if you don't do it, then it's going to be your kids or your grandkids or your great-grandkids, as, as we've seen through our generations, that inherit the system that actually isn't working and find themselves in exactly the same place where they can't make the best choice. Now, I'm not exactly sure how we get to an educational standard that's going to start to empower people that direction. But I do know with curriculums changing even at the high school level to begin to think about social responsibility and ethics and choice making, we're going to start to go farther that direction uh, than we have in the past where ethics was either a, an option in terms of a course to take or it wasn't even there. So you can look at the history of the MBA, right, the Masters in Business Administration, which all these uh, big high-profile CEOs and so forth uh, often have. And there was not an ethics course in the MBA program, even though there had been finance and accounting and marketing and organizational behavior and leadership courses since the 1950s. That's when that degree started. There wasn't an ethics course in that uh, course of, uh, of uh, classes that you had to take to get your MBA and go out and run businesses until the 1980s. So I think that says something both about, uh, well, it should have been in there from the very beginning, but... We did make the moral progress in the educational system, if nowhere else, to actually understand that that was a course that was absolutely vital to the way that business people were going to be making decisions in the world. And I think that awareness is growing. Um, that's why I, I'm very optimistic, even though we see these uh, dreadful downfalls these days. I'm very <laughs> optimistic because the right people are coming together to ask the right questions. My guest is Dr. Christopher Gilbert. He's the author of the best-selling There's No Right Way to Do the Wrong Thing. I love that title, by the way. And uh, his newest release, The Noble Edge, Reclaiming an Ethical World, One Choice at a Time. Uh, Chris, what's, uh, what's next for you? Are you going to write uh, uh, another book, maybe one called uh, um, Alternative Facts and the Science Behind Them? <laughs> you know, you see a little bit of that in the noble edge. I tried to keep myself out of out of the political trenches, but uh, the idea that there are changeable facts or alternative truths is is absolutely moronic or ludicrous, I should say. Uh, and in fact, it really puts smoke in the room 
and, and takes us away from understanding uh, what the uh, power of having ethical choices is. I think if this book uh, becomes as uh, successful as, I, as we're hoping it will be, and my uh, aim here was to create a national conversation about ethics in a different way, if it gets to that point, I think what I'll do is actually start to specialize. So you might see uh, the noble edge in marketing. You might see the noble edge in families, oh, uh, the noble edge in faith. Yeah, so that we can look at it more specifically. It's a huge topic, of course, thousands of years of human development in that topic. So I think it probably would be worthwhile to think about it in more specialized terms in a, an area that someone might specifically be uh, to make choices. Well, Chris, we're almost out of time, but I always give guests an opportunity to let listeners know where they can find out more about you and your work, past, present, and future. Do you have a, uh, a website? We absolutely do. In fact, you mentioned up front there was a Noble Edge Consulting. So the website, you can either just do uh, uh, www.nobleedge.com or you can do www.3wsandnobleedgeconsulting.com. Uh, you can also get uh, uh, an idea of the book, read passages of it. In fact, if you go to any of the online book sites right now, the ebook is available. The print book comes out August 10th, but you can go on to Amazon, Barnes & Nobles, Indigo.com, BookSales.com, and you're able to go through and start to begin read passages about the book. So, uh, yeah, you can contact me on any of those websites I talked about or go take a look at the book and uh, see if we can't start that conversation in families and communities. Uh, and across the nation about making better choices. Well, Chris, thank you so much for spending this time with me this morning. And uh, just reminding all of us there are right choices to be made, and we should be making them one at a time. Sounds great. Thank you so much. It was a privilege. Take care. That was uh, Dr. Christopher Gilbert. Again, he was uh, the author of the best-selling There's No Right Way to Do the Wrong Thing, and his newest release coming out is The Noble Edge, Reclaiming an Ethical World, One Choice at a Time. And we'll have more of the Tom Sumner program straight ahead. <music> And guess what? You're listening to the Tom Sumner Show right now. And now. And now, too. And even now. Our lives have been turned upside down by COVID-19. When a vaccine becomes available, it's critical that all of us get it. What we do as individuals will impact everyone's health, including those who can't get the vaccine. We won't get through this unless everyone takes part. 
Now is the time to get up to date on all recommended vaccines for both kids and adults. Experts say it's more important than ever for everyone to get their flu vaccine this year. And if you're older, you should get both the flu and pneumonia vaccines since both illnesses can make COVID-19 even worse. Vaccines are available at a lot of convenient places. So be an example for friends and loved ones and encourage them to get vaccinated too. We all want to reunite, travel, and get back to school and work. But that means we all need to get on board. This is the time to do what's right for each other. Get vaccinated. It's our best shot. Hey, this is Tom from the Tom Sumner Program. Catch me and a gaggle of great guests weekdays on Our Voices Radio, WFOVLP 92.1 FM. You never know who might drop by. Joe By from the Blue Hawaiians. Dan Serling. Congressman Dan Kildee. Alexander Zondrick. Actor, comedian Joe Napote. Woodrow Stanley. U.S. Senator Debbie Stabenow. State Senator Jim Ananick. Comedian Brian McCree. The unknown comic. Mark Farner. And Tom, I want you to know Tom's my friend. You, you've always got great questions, and you know the material, and you, and you care about it, and it's, uh, it's that's impressive. Nice to be with you, Tom. And I admire you for reading all of that. I haven't read the whole thing. I've got willing to admit that. <laughs> hey, Tom, this is my favorite interview all It's like having coffee at the kitchen table with you. Tune in Monday through Friday from 9 to 12 right here on 92.1 of a Kind. And check out our website at TomSumnerProgram.com. East Village Magazine is the monthly neighborhood magazine read all over Flint. With support from grants, donations, and advertisers, East Village Magazine's talented local writers give you an in-depth look at local news, issues, and people that make Flint, Flint. Copies of East Village Magazine are available at many of your favorite shops and restaurants around Flint or online at eastvillagemagazine.org. East Village Magazine, community-focused and community-supported. Discoveries. They happen when we least expect them in places we thought we knew. And discoveries have a way of teaching us a little more about ourselves along the way. Welcome to Flint and Genesee County where up north meets down south. Home to Michigan's largest county park system and a vibrant culture. A place filled with discoveries we've yet to make throughout acres of beautiful lakes, wetlands, and woods and in the diverse city beyond. Where the uplifting melodies of gospel choirs fill the air. Where the work of renowned artists color the galleries and museums. Where the fresh fruits and vegetables at the downtown farmer's market awaken our senses and where the cultural center and planetarium broaden our view of the world. Let's spend a few days enjoying the wonders of Flint and Genesee County, where the joy of discovery is pure Michigan. Your trip begins at michigan.org. MTA Flint is nationally recognized for continually seeking to provide sustainable, reliable, and cost-efficient transportation for individuals throughout the region. Through work-related and non-emergency medical transportation and your ride services, MTA is moving people with future and alternative fuel technologies. More information about MTA Flint and specialized services is available at mtaflint.org. The uneasy feeling Rod Serling is behind one of those doors. Rod Serling. Rod Serling. What's this, the Twilight Zone? Where is everybody? I would have been headed for the Twilight Zone. Twilight Zone. If I go any lower, I'll be in the Twilight Zone. All right. 
Oh, but Jethro's right at home in the Twilight Zone. I'm in the Twilight Zone. Now, having made this little jaunt into the Twilight Zone... I got a feeling something strange is about to happen in the Twilight Zone. Hi, this is Ann Serling, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. Welcome to this presentation of the Comedy Spotlight on the Tom Sumner Program. We like to do at this time a song that my brother wrote. This is this is original song my brother wrote five years ago. My brother wrote this song in a fit of creative passion and genius. My brother wrote this song, and it was we only performed it. My brother and myself only three times. We performed this song three times, and it was immediately stolen from us by this other commercial crass. Was stolen from us by this other commercial crass group that stole the song. They never acknowledged. No, Tommy, don't they go just into stole that. the song no, from my younger Tom, brother. Tom, don't go into that. It's, the, it's just embarrassing to say. There's that. a. There are adults are entitled to know. <laughs> they stole the song from along my brother with my luggage. along with his luggage. Right. <laughs> and they ne- they put it on one of the major record companies. They never once. Ag- and it sold over three million records. My brother's song that he wrote, and they never acknowledged it. As a result, it sold over three million records, and as a result. Pay attention. As a result, every time we perform my own brother's song that he wrote in his creative effort and genius responsible, every time we perform this, his own song, we've been ridiculed. And persecuted. And persecuted. We've been ridiculed and persecuted every time we perform this song that people will come up and say, I heard your show and uh, you stole that song from that other commercial crass group. You just stole that song. So we're going to ridicule you, prosecute you, persecute you. So I'd like to take this time to set the record straight, as my brother's be deprived of, depraved of the one. You were right the first time. He was depraved of this opportunity of having the, for posterity to understand and enjoy. He's been. I'd like to publicly dedicate the performance of the song to no. my younger brother for his creative effort and no. genius in writing the song. You don't have to I'm do that. I'm going to, Dickie. Oh. I'd like to publicly dedicate to you, Dickie Smothers, the, the creative effort and genius responsible for the song. I'd like to publicly dedicate to you at this time. Thanks. Swell. Thanks a lot. <laughs> You're welcome. We'd like to perform it for you now, and I'm sure you've all heard the song many times before. But we'd like to do it for you in the original first time, the first time way, no, in the you mean, original. You mean the first virgin time. edition? The what? I said, you mean the virgin edition. We'll sing it in the virgin edition. I don't know what that means. Edition, <laughs> I don't know what it means. Edition? We'd like to do it to original virgin. No, sing it. Ready? I'm ready. I knew it'd be ridiculed. <laughs> yes. history, there's been the story of the internal triangle, this particular eternal triangle. This particular internal triangle concerned a condemned man named Tom Crudley, a man named Jason, and another man named Sally Jean Johnson. <laughs> <laughs> 
Fasten eat and rhythm You got me on the go Fasten eat and rhythm I'm all a quiver What a mess you're making The neighbors wanna know Why I'm always shaking Just like a quiver Each morning I Get up with the sun Now you're doing wrong When you start to patter I'm so unhappy Won't you take a day off Decide to run along Somewhere far away off And baby make you snappy Oh how I long to be The girl I used to be Fascinating rhythm Fascinating rhythm Fascinating rhythm Stop picking on me Hey, that wraps it up for today's edition of the Tom Sumner Program. I want to say thanks to all of my guests on the show today. Christopher Gilbert, uh, author of The Noble Edge. And before that, the candidates for uh, Flint City Council from the 7th Ward, including the incumbent Monica Galloway, challenger Ali Herkenroder, and the write-in candidate Keisha Tiro. And uh, I had invited the uh, other candidate, uh, Shannon Searcy, but she, uh, she declined. However, tomorrow I'll be back with another city council ward that'll be on the August 3rd ballot. That's the 8th ward, including incumbent Alan Griggs and all three of his challengers. So tune in for that and uh, have a great day. In the meantime, good night, everybody. The Tom Sumner Program is a live variety show we want to acknowledge all of our guests who play such an important role in the show and our cavalcade of cohorts from coast to coast for their regular contributions. Most of the musical accompaniment was provided by people in or from the Flint area. Many of the pre-recorded portions of the Tom Sumner program are made possible by Flint's own Steve McComb and Pencil Sketch Recording in Nashville, Tennessee. If you have comments, questions or suggestions about the show, find us on Facebook. This is Prue Clearwater. Join us next time for another edition of the Tom Sumner Program. And thanks for listening.